Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I was like, oh my God, there's an opening for a Daniel Blue restaurant. Great. And then right after that, it was a thought that dawned me of like, you didn't go to culinary school. He has kids from some of the best culinary schools. Look at your resume. Why are you even bothering apply? And I was like, okay, this is my reality, but let's go for it. It's living with that fear of failure. One of my biggest fears is like waking up one day and being like, coulda, shoulda, woulda. If I don't wake up every day and say to myself, wow. Yesterday was great. How can I top this off? Well, let's find out today. Then I'm not living my full life. That is the voice of Byron Gomez, chef of 7908 Restaurant in Aspen, Colorado. Byron is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a prolonged arrangement of the senses to make some sense of this. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our feature guest today is Byron Gomez of 7908 Restaurant in Aspen, Colorado. More about him and his unique story in just a moment. Before we start today's show, though, I need to publicly apologize to our guests from earlier this week, Zoe Ajana. As listeners know, I struggle with these introductions, which are a source of terrible anxiety for me. I don't know why. I've been doing them for years. Uh, The other day, in my haste to launch my interview with Zoe on the U.S. publication date of her book, I recorded the introduction without a script. I made a ridiculous and glaring misspeak while I was doing that and posted the show without properly reviewing the intro. I'm trying not to take it as a sign that I actually do need to over-worry these intros because... I am a one-man band here, and it's it's tough to do all this, especially trying to drop more than one show a week. And I was able to correct it within about 12 hours of when the show dropped. I actually discovered it during a bout of insomnia. I was listening at about 3 in the morning, heard the intro, leapt out of bed like a fireman, <laughs> re-recorded a little segment, spliced it in, and reposted it in the middle of the night. So not many people heard it with that error, but I still feel very, very awful about it. I expressed this privately to Zoe the other day, but I want to publicly apologize as well. I've also been meaning in a much happier note to shout out to a listener named Anne in Antwerp. Anne and I have DM'd a couple of times over the years. She is someone who listens to the show on long strolls and hikes in the Antwerp area. And when she saw on Instagram that I was in town for the 50 best a few weeks ago, 
sent me a DM, let me know that she was going to be at one of the related events that week, and we were able to meet up and chat for a bit. And thank you for that. And thank you for being a listener for all these years. I do love meeting listeners out and about. And now that we are starting to have in a very, you know, careful, conservative, guarded way, festivals and conferences again, please, if you ever see me there, do say hello or DM me if you see that I'm there and let's try to meet each other and say hi. I love doing that. I also want to give a quick public thank you to my friend Gabe McMacken. Gabe used to be chef owner of The Finch, which was a terrific restaurant in Brooklyn, New York. And he was a regular guest on a show I used to do with my friend Jimmy Bradley. Gabe invited me and my wife Caitlin up to Troutbeck, the historic property in Amenia, New York, where he has been the chef for a little while now. It was our second dinner there. It was our first time staying over. And I have to tell you, it is a beautiful property and Gabe's food just keeps getting better and better. If you're looking for a getaway in this part of the country, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I'm also running back up to Troutbeck in a few days to interview Gabe for this show. That was supposed to happen yesterday before we pushed off to come home, but Gabe and I got so carried away, even though I'd already set up all the podcasting gear and equipment, that we ran out of time and we never actually started recording. I packed everything up and we made a date for me to return next Wednesday. I'll probably drop that interview next Friday, I would guess, a week from today. So moving on, as promised, I am trying to share shows with a little more frequency and to put out there a mix of current event episodes, which will be a little shorter than our traditional biographical shows, but I also want to air uh, mostly biographical shows. That is what most people came to know uh, and I think enjoy the podcast for. Today's show is for me right in the pocket of what defines the show for most people. It is a deep dive, deeply personal conversation with a chef. That chef is Byron Gomez. You may know him from a recent season of Top Chef or from his Instagram account, which has a sizable following. Byron and I had never met before, though we're sure we must have been in the same building a few times when he was cooking in some of the best restaurants in New York. Byron has a great story. I don't want to spoil it, but just by way of teeing it up, he was born in Costa Rica, moved to New York State with his family at age eight, started cooking in fast food restaurants as a teenager, and eventually worked his way into some high-end restaurants in New York and now into his first executive chef position at 7908 in Aspen. Byron is an open book. This is a very personal, intimate, revealing conversation. I loved how open and frank he was from start to finish especially on the subject of immigration, which is something that recently occurred to me. I don't think we talk enough maybe about on this show, given how many people it affects within the ranks of the restaurant industry. So I was glad that I had a chance to explore it a little bit with Byron in this conversation. As always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my interview with Byron Gomez. Here you go. Let's set the scene. We are here in Bryant Park. 
pretty magical. I mean, <laughs> uh, we're just uh, north of the entrance to Bryant Park Grill for people who know New York. And this is your first time back, you said, in New York City in about uh, two and a half two years? Two and a half years since I left home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm based out of Aspen now, so yeah. it's, uh, it's good to be home. And we, I just got to paint this scene because we were talking about, you know, one of the reasons you hadn't been here in a while is the pandemic. Correct. And, you know, the city is day by day just like... Uh, almost like time-lapse photography coming back to life. They're erecting the little kiosks where they do the holiday shops here. Yes. There's a thing called Sunbelt Rentals. I don't even know what that is, but there's like <laughs> massive... Like crane or something. Yeah, there's yeah. all kinds of construction noise and cranes. How's the city strike you coming back? Um, Does well, it feel semi-normal? I got here, what, on like a week ago and uh, went to have dinner at Batard. A buddy of mine is now running Batard, uh, Doug. Doug Brixton. Exactly. Uh -huh. Yeah. So we used to work back uh, at Cafe Boulou mm -hmm. back in the day and um, left dinner. Next thing I realized, I walked for an hour and like 25 minutes without realizing it. Just like the energy yeah. of being back in the city, seeing like a little bit of the aftermath of COVID. Uh, went by Soho, saw some storefronts, you know, still right. kind of like- Right, the for rent signs are out of stuff. business. Yes, yeah. so those things, I saw a couple of restaurants that I was like, oh my God, I used to come here or I used to come to this bar, it's not there anymore. So that was a little bit like reality check of mm -hmm. everything that like the city has gone through. But again, you know, it's, it's New York. It always reinvents itself. It always rejuvenates itself. And, and, and yeah, some other restaurants popping up, little pockets of the neighborhood, the um, <clears throat> West 4th was like lively, yeah. all of that. Um, so it, it's been great. So it, it feels almost, except feels, for the, uh, some like the storefront thing, yes. uh, the masks. Yep, the masks, It, it yeah. feels somewhat like the city you left last time you were here. Yes, yeah, Times Square still feels like Times Square. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's coming back. I remember the first time I saw like, you know, somebody screaming at another driver. I was like, we're back, baby. Let's go. We're back. And it's great to meet you. There's a lot I want to talk to you about. Uh, as you know, generally speaking, we, yes. we do biographical conversations here. I hope it's okay if I start with this. You're an immigrant to this country. Yes, I am. You know, what's fascinating to me is that you represent or are of a population mm -hmm that is a huge percentage of the restaurant community. Correct. Not a lot of people uh, who fall into your status rise to the level yes. that you've managed to rise to. Yes. They don't become executive chefs. They don't go on a show like Top Chef. Uh -huh. Do you agree with that statement, first of all? Yes, but I don't see it like that. I, I see myself as a normal guy who you know, has all these goals, just keeps on throwing darts and something's gonna stick. I'm not gonna lie, there's days that I wake up and I'm like, why me? I mean, why, did you, why are you why the one I, who was able to kind of break out of the exactly. pack? Exactly, yeah. or, or why am I where I'm at at this platform of my career, mm -hmm. or this exposure of being on national television. But you know, one thing that, that I realized going to, um, and, and it was very, it was very repetitive while I was on Top Chef when they kept on interviewing me was like, well, can you tell us about your, your resume? Can you tell us about a little bit of your life story? Until then, that's when I, 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 metaphorically speaking, like I got to like a mountain hill and I looked down and I was like, holy shit, like I just done all of that. Like, yeah. This is crazy. Uh, Feels like it went by fast. Yeah, it went by fast and, 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 and the level of, you know, starting in Burger King, as an immigrant, you know, person to making it to the number one restaurant in the world and being a sous chef there. Yeah, you're referring to 11 Madison, Madison Park. Park. You were there in 17 when exactly. it won the big uh, yeah. World's 50 Best yep. prize. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. It was a, what a great time to be alive, you know. <laughs> uh, 
And then um, and some good parties. Oh my god! And then the pop-ups—they <laughs> were great. Yeah. Well, I want to get to all of this, but let's start at the beginning. You were born, and until age eight, if I'm correct, you yes. lived in Costa Rica. Yes. How well do you? Rem- I mean, age eight. I remember stuff. I feel like I remember like flashes of things, maybe before I was four or five, and then I have pretty vivid memories from like five to eight. How vividly do you remember your life in Costa Rica? So I didn't until recently, honestly. Really? I'm I'm, I'm starting to write, possibly, you know, getting into the works of maybe eventually getting into the memoir Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, just because I'm finding that so many people are so influenced by my story and, and never thought of it like that. I thought it was just like a regular life. So that process has been not only therapeutic for me, but I have found myself into like, the mind is so powerful. I see it like, it's like a file and you just have to just dig in it and then pull something out and then you start remembering. So I remember my life since I was maybe about four or five, but you know, not like in a happy way, more like real life situations. Like I grew up in a home that for me, Sundays was the day that, uh, 20 of my family members would come over and we were the household where we held all these parties. The guys would be in the living room watching the National Soccer League. The ladies would be all around the table with their homemade aprons that they stitched up, you know, either flipping tortillas or just kind of cutting vegetables with a knife that's not sharp and, you know, like a homemade riggedy. Um, so so all of that, all those memories I remember. Yeah. Uh, but Can I was- just ask you to, because I love this detail, sorry yes. to interrupt, but I, I was getting ready to talk to you. So I, you know, I read up and I listened to some other interviews you've done. Can you talk about the van? The van. Yeah. The, yes. <laughs> How everybody got to your house. Can you just tell so people this? Because I've uh, never heard this before and it's amazing. It was a white and uh, it was a white, my, my tío, my uncle Luis, he used to drive what we called a, a pirate taxi in Costa Rica. So it was like, you know, um, not a registered taxi with a company. He just just, just give rides. Yeah, this is what in New York used to be called. Okay. It's, it's a very non-acceptable term these days. Yes. This is what New Yorkers used to call gypsy cabs. Gypsy cabs. Unregulated, yeah. not registered, no yep. medallion, right? Yep. Just yep. kind yep. of. Yep. Nobody messes with that guy. Everybody in the neighborhood knows him. Yeah. He's just right. trying to make his money. Yep. So yeah, so he started off like that. And then he had this van that... It was like 15 people, but to me at that age, it was so big. It was like a bus. Yeah, it was like a bus. It's the biggest vehicle that I saw. And he used to just make his rounds all around the neighborhood and pick up my uncles, pick up my aunts. Uh, They used to bring like, it was like a potluck type of thing. And then my cousins will hop on and then just unload them. And he would make like two trips every Sunday. He would make two trips, four trips in total picking everyone up and then dropping everyone off. So to me, that was beautiful, but there were the other six days where I experienced domestic violence, alcoholism for my father. I remember there were many times at four o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, my mom would wake us up all frantic and take the pillowcase and just pack stuff and we would run away from home. And uh, we would go through the coffee fields. And I remember vividly at, in, at night, half asleep, you know, getting hit with the, with the branches of coffee and then going through like creeks. Uh, I remember the moss, like it was green and wet. I remember the smells. So it's so crazy, like going back to, 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 to that age and remembering that. Uh, maybe not in the best, you know, a scenario or memories that you could have, but I remember waking up 
And but as a young, I'm sorry to interrupt, but as a, I mean, you left Costa Rica at age eight. So Correct. what you're describing, that had to be terrifying. Five or six. Terrifying. I was, yeah, I was no, I was actually like five, pretty yeah. much. I didn't really grasp the situation, what was going on. I just knew that there was something wrong. Yeah. Then I, we, we would wake up. I would just like remember falling asleep and then waking up in a house or in a room that the curtain was like a piece of cloth sometimes. Sometimes I would sleep in a bed. Sometimes my mom would get that pillowcase and that would be my pillow. And I would wake up frantic. You know, I didn't know what was going on. And there were days that I would cry. There were other days that I woke up and I remember, I remember hearing my mom somewhere talking. And I would get up, crawl out of bed or just get up from the floor, walk out of that room and just follow my mom's voice. Some days crying, some days I didn't. And then once I found her, it was always in the kitchen. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding, because you said, did you guys leave and then you would come back? No, so we would leave and then we would end up at a friend's house okay. or a cousin's house or an aunt's house. So once house, you left things, the house? While things settled down back at home. So that would be like two or three days maybe. And then that would go back a home. Week, and then we would go back home. Wow. And that was just like a cycle that I remember happening three or four times. I don't know exactly how many more times prior to that. Yeah. That to me was the comfort of having my mother there, being in a strange place, and it always revolved around food. You know, so I had that memory of that Sunday. So that was like a sanctuary day. That was a sanctuary day. Yeah. Uh, so that Sundays were like, I get to share with everybody and this is a perfect world. And then there were the other six days that right. I didn't know exactly when this was going to happen. Wow. So that uh, day was special for you. That day was special. Did you yeah. recognize it at the time as special or is it looking back that you recognize it Looking as back, I recognized that it was special. Then it was more comforting and knowing that... I was in a lost world in a sense as a little kid and then I something familiar, my mother. And then, and then she had a, like a plate of like gallo pinto, which is rice and beans in yeah, Costa sure. Rica, yeah. right there warm for me. And she was like, obviously she knew what was going on and she tried to play it off, but she was always very caressing. And then she would go to work. Right. And what, then, what kind of work did she do? Uh, she was a teacher. What are the smells that take you back to the Sundays? Sundays, so the citrus from the limes, the freshness and the crunchiness from, we call it culantro, culantro, which is like a cilantro, but mm -hmm. it looks like more like epazote. Okay. Um, and it's a little bit more pungent. So it has like a nice little core in the middle in which you cut and it makes that crunch. I remember that and, and, and the smell of it, uh, which is really unique. Um, the potatoes, my aunt will grab the knife and put the potatoes in their hand and just kind of quarter them in their hand instead of using the cutting board. Uh, so all those little techniques and smells and, and, and things like that was my first introduction into, into cooking yeah. and, and, and what family was like. And yeah, Amazing. Amazing. Thanks for sharing all of that. Yes, of course. So your mom brings you, you, you come to the United States. Yes. Okay. What, what finally drove that decision and who, who came? That's another uh, little story. Uh, my mom got fed up with her lifestyle and the abuse and... I guess didn't find a way out, um, so she ended up just fleeing to the United States to a family friend. So back home in my mother's house, which my grandma lived in, it was uh, me, my grandma, my alcoholic dad, and my two sisters. I'm back home in Costa Rica. Back home in Costa Rica. Okay. I'm the middle child. So very typical in the Latinx community, exactly. like the extended family under one That's roof. That's when it started. Yep. 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 Um, so, and then my cousins will live literally like maybe a hundred feet up 
the backyard type of thing in another house. Mm -hmm. So again, everybody very compact. That's how the, the Latino community mm -hmm. is. She left. I had no idea what was going on. Again, I must have been like six. Uh, my dad at that time got diagnosed with cirrhosis to the point where he was defecating and pissing chunks of his liver. From all the drinking. From all the That's drinking. That's a liver disease for yes. people who don't know that word. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so his, his liver was like literally, you know, decaying. Um, and he had a, he had months to live. I, at that time, my one of my aunts, again, we all lived in the same community. One of my aunts that lived possibly like quarter mile up the road, she started taking my sisters to church. And then my dad didn't really agree with it. He didn't really like it. Eventually, he made himself go. To, I mean, he, he found himself going to church um, and really found refuge in the fellowship. Really found our comfort and 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 you know, I guess being a Christian and, and things like that. That you know, he found Christ. They they started like praying for him and doing all this, and he got healed. He's been sober since. So it was like a really cold turkey situation where. We like to say that, you know, God, God saved them, depending on whatever religious or faiths you have. Mm -hmm. That worked for him at the time. And, uh, yeah, he got his act together eight months later after my mom left. And we should say, your mom came to Islip? To the U.S. in 1995. To Islip? To Central Islip. New York. New York. Which is in Long, Long Island. Long Island. Yep. Correct. In 1995, 1996, my dad came to reconcile with her to get his act together. They both worked two factory jobs. Um, now I know this, but... You know, I didn't know that they were working 16, 18 hour days type of thing between commuting and everything. Um, and they left us in Costa Rica. Now I go through this turmoil of me thinking that I'm a bastard. Me thinking that my parents left me. Me not knowing exactly what was going on at home, but I was living with my grandma and I was so rebellious because I was going through a trauma, which, you know, nobody really knew what was going on. Like back in the day, Latin American countries, we don't have the resources and the knowledge that we have now about dealing with trauma like this. Um, and I jumped through three different households. Uh, I went through uh, three different aunts in a, in a, in a, a period of eight months. You while mean my went through because they, would, they just couldn't take it they anymore and they passed you on to the next exactly. one? Exactly. Yeah. So not only rejection, you know, till I found my last household, which it was uh, my aunt, my tia Anna. She, till this day, is my favorite because um, she will make me pizza. We, I will go hang out with her on Sundays, and that's for her day off. And we would just have conversations. And she had that mothery love that I guess I was looking for as a six-year-old. She taught me how to knead dough. She taught me what is yeast, how does it react, temperature, moisture, something that I, you know, so crazy every time I make bread now. I think about her hands, honestly, mm -hmm. her soft palms. It's something so beautiful, and that's the beauty about food, that it just like breaks any boundaries, any is ageless. It's, it's something so magical that, you know, like I said, kind of going back and trying to write this book or see what it turns into, it's been something so therapeutic that that's where I find my comfort was in the kitchen and in food, and if I trace it back, those are my early memories whether it was happy moments whether it was very tragic moments um, that's what life is was it accepted in your family and in your community that you had this um, that you were drawn to cooking uh, because I just wonder because there is you know um, uh, you know here in America we have the word macho correct yeah. there is the yeah. word there is the equivalent machismo right um, in, in, in 
there definitely was is. Was there any kind of stigma attached? Did anyone give you a hard time? Were people encouraging and accepting of it? What What was the reaction to the fact that you weren't out with, like on the Sundays you described, yeah. you you were in the kitchen with the women and yeah. not, you know, uh, watching the ball game? So what it, what it was, I remember, now that you're mentioning it, I remember that sometimes my aunts will, like, push me away with an apron, kind of, like, open up the skirt, be like, oh, no, go play you know, kind of waving me away. Um, and, and that was part of the machismo culture. So even to that, them it seemed... Even to them it seemed like, okay, well, this kid doesn't belong here. You know, let, let's not groom him to, to be in the kitchen at a young age because maybe when I... So, so it was those fears and those yeah, scares. Yeah. I guess now that we're talking about it, um, it brings me back because I remember that now. Interesting. Um, but I never got judged or, like, questioned because... I wasn't doing it with the intention of like fitting in. It was just something that was so familiar. It's, it to was me. instinctual for it you. Was, exactly. Yeah, you it, were it, you it were really on was. an animal level. You were drawn to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. 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 When you finally started getting uh, a chance to do this kind of stuff, was did uh, do you feel like you had a natural aptitude? Like, did you like you described making bread? Like yes. Like now that, now that any kind of baking. Uh, is it's tactile. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like there are people who have good hands and and, and people who don't. Yeah, you know, correct. there's some people who pick it up like right away. Yeah, they just can sense it. Yep. Um, like the way some people can like pick up an instrument quickly, right? Correct. And some people don't. Yeah. Where, where do you fall in on that scale? Uh, I mean, I've always been like a creative person. I've always been a very imaginative person. I've always been like, hey, let's 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 just throw darts and something's gonna stick. Like I said earlier on, uh, a dreamer. You know, I, we'll get into the DACA situation, but like that's the perfect name, like a dreamer. And I'm like, that's exactly where I fit in. Yeah. Um, so I, I've always been drawn to, to arts. Um, I, I used to play in the church. I used to play Latin percussion. So I used to play like timbales and the congas, okay. the bongos, so Latin, like those kind of Latin drummed instruments. And then I got drawn into tenor saxophone and I just decided one day to save up and buy myself a tenor saxophone and uh, just started playing by ear. Yeah. So it's been like those instincts that I think when it comes to food, it's just been more of a natural. I mean, obviously I, I read, I, I've worked at amazing restaurants. I've had some of the world best mentors, I could say. Uh, but you know, you have to do your part also. You know, that, those, sure. that talent is not gonna develop itself if you don't practice. Can I ask, I'm so struck as you just, it's, I'm jumping way out of sequence with this question. Come on, New York. Don't do this to us, New York. Love it. You know, you have such a positive energy. you got this huge uh -huh. smile. Um, you know, you're describing a very traumatic period of time in your childhood. Mm -hmm. Do you know when you rounded the corner into having the kind of attitude and optimism uh, that you seem to just be brimming with today? Yeah. Because it doesn't always flow from a childhood yeah. as tumultuous as what you're describing. Do you um, trace that to a particular time in your life, This when you rounded this corner? I mean, when you're asking me that, the, 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 the phrase that comes to mind is, um, everybody sees the glory, but nobody knows the story. Yes, it's very easy for me to sit here now and say, well, you know, I was just on Top Chef, and I worked here, and my life is amazing, and I'm traveling, but it wasn't always like that. Um, there were many times in my life where, and, and with anyone, I think uh, a lot of people can relate, where you come to these wide intersections. Adversary is a terrible thing to waste. To have that opportunity of coming to that wide intersection and, and questioning your moves, your thoughts, it's really amazing. But I've come to make peace with the choices that I make. So yeah, life has been tough. 
you know, um, I've come to learn to, to, to learn with uh, to, to live with the fear of failure. And that's just how life is. We could go out there and pout and complain. Not every day is going to be sunshine. I get it, you know, but the sun will come out one day, you know. Um, it's the whole Costa Rican saying lifestyle, pura vida. Pura vida translates to pure life. But it's like in Hawaii, it's like the aloha, you know, hi, how you doing? Um, it's very unique to Costa Rica, and, and we say pura vida for everything. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, how you doing? You respond, pura vida. How did you sleep? You respond, pura vida. It's something positive. So I really embrace that because I miss that from my country. Mm -hmm. So I try to, this is who I am. Yeah. You know, deep down inside of me, I'm, I'm, I'm freaking pura vida. Yeah. And everything is going to be fine. And, 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 you know, we'll figure it out. So you internalize that aspect of, yes. of the Costa Rican. You know, growing up as an immigrant, every day I was like, it's not fair that I'm in this situation and I'm trying to, like, be the best. And I'm not getting a freaking break. Did I go through that? Yes. Did those thoughts and those feelings dawn upon me? Of course. But you have to snap out of it. You have to have that discipline eventually that it becomes your character. And then you're just like full of life or, or joyful, grateful. Grateful, grateful, grateful is one thing that I try to practice every morning. Mm -hmm. Because uh, again, you know, why me? This is why, because you have one more day to show it. So that's why it's, that's, that's why it's you. I do, I've mentioned it on the show, I do a morning, my version of a meditation. Amazing. And it's not that unusual. People have been writing about this a lot. It's even in some journals that, you know, that you can buy now, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know, people do say that taking a moment in the morning mm -hmm. to just, um, to be grateful. Yeah. To, just to be here. Yeah. Is, especially after the last 18 oh, months. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it is really important thing to remind yourself of every yeah, day for um, sure because that's a that's a huge it's, that's it's, a good place to start from. yeah it's good to stay grounded <laughs> you know it's good to to, to absorb yeah. all that energy just because we give out so much throughout the day that sure. we need to recharge every day i want to get to you know these first i mean these uh first kitchen jobs you had at places like burger king and tgi fridays <laughs> and i think you worked at a sheridan hotel Correct. at one point yes but before we get to that just tell me about uh just briefly you know life as an immigrant child mm -hmm. in Long Island, New York, mm -hmm. um, I don't know what your dad did back home, but you said your mom was a teacher, and then yeah. they were here working factory jobs. Yeah. Just what was what was it like, you know, uh, as you enter adolescence? Just paint a picture for me, if you would, of kind of your home life and what kind of kid you were. Yeah. So uh, growing up, coming to this country, being exposed to a new culture, um, I remember I was so part of being the, the rebellious kid that I was in Costa Rica that carried on here and 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 very culture shock the food was different I didn't want to learn the language um, things like that you start building this this image of what it is to be here in the US you start recognizing that, that, that you're different because you're not liking certain things those habits then eventually maybe become like a characteristic I knew I was different I knew you know my eventually my legal status was very well known to me how was it described to you as a kid it wasn't really described to me as a kid. It was more I saw it in the community of whom we've, and, and, and I can see this a lot in immigration communities. Um, they come to this country and they, they establish themselves. They pick a little pocket of certain parts of town or this certain block, or I'm only gonna, gonna hang out here. And that limits you, your mind, a lot of times. So sometimes tradition, it's, it could be a bad thing. Um, you know, and, and, and whether it was be cooking because you could only do the dish this way. Well, what if I want to add this other thing? And I have respect for tradition. Don't get me wrong. Customs and tradition is what, what makes 
civilization continue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, but and there can be like a certain kind of dogmatic attitude. Exactly. So then I, I already knew that I was limit. There was a limit. And you can't go past this perimeter. Stay in this lane. Exactly. Because yeah. then you're going to put yourself out there and it's going to be dangerous because we haven't gone past this as a community. So I don't know what is out there. Yeah. So there's that fear. Well, isn't it also with the food? I mean, food in particular. Mm-hmm. And I told you before we started recording, uh, you know, my late stepmother was from Cuba yeah. originally, came to the U.S. originally to Texas and then to Miami. I've always thought one of the reasons that a lot of immigrant communities are so attached to the traditional food mm-hmm. is that's kind of all you bring with you. That's it. Yeah. And that's that when you can recreate it on a yeah. daily basis. Yeah. Right. And it's also there is sometimes a fear, an aversion, a reluctance that your that your descendants like your children your grandchildren Correct. that your your heritage will become diluted you i think that's you, where the resistance to changing the food comes from you just said something that you know you're talking about food you said something along the lines of like this is the only thing that they have and they have it every day i experienced that and after having every day the same meal i questioned myself and i said there has to be more something more than life than this Having the same rice and beans at the same, I get it, tradition is great and that's the only thing, but I don't think you're gonna lose yourself who you are if you go out there and, and, and expand your knowledge or, or, or your taste buds or, or right. and, and I get like the refuge, you know, let's stay together guys because everyone else is the enemy type of thing when right. it comes to And I hope I'm being clear. I'm, no, no, you I, are. You I totally agree with are. what you're saying. I'm just saying I think the psychology of the older is. generation exactly. is. And it chains you down. And I, I, I came to that wide section right. one day in my life, and I was like, this is this is chaining me down. I cannot progress, and, and, and I love you guys, but I need to go out there and, and see what's out there because, like, the world is so beautiful and so big. Like, why are we having the same rice and beans every day? You know? Ah. <laughs> but then you deal with the judgment of, okay, uh, well, you're an outsider now, or you might think you're better than us now. And it's not that. You're... You, you think you're less than me, but we're not. I'm just going out there and going outside of these perimeters. And then when you get to the other side, you seem brave on this end. On the other side, you're shaking because like, I don't know anyone. And am I gonna get accepted? Um, how am I gonna view this? How are people gonna view me? They know I'm an outsider. Are they go- so it's like this whole psychological thing that I struggle through that through my identity. I'm from Costa Rica, but I'm not Costa Rican enough. I wasn't raised there. I'm from the US, but I'm not really from the US, but I was raised here. So where do I fit in? How were you treated by other kids in school? Was it okay? Um, Here, there were questions like, why are you hanging out with us type of thing? And I didn't see it like as shocking as like it sounds. My answer was like, because I want to learn from you guys. So naively or very innocent. I was like, because I want to learn. Because you look different than me. And like, what do you eat? PB&J? What is that? Um, American cheese? What is that? Look at my lunchbox. Did you have one of these exotic lunchboxes uh, that, that yeah, people talk about? Yeah, rice and beans and plantains. And people thought that with other yeah, kids thought that was my, weird. My mom would like do like fried liver and just like with onions. And, I mean, what this kid has thing. that? <laughs> a lot of, but a lot of immigrant kids talk about this. Like yeah. their food smelled different. Yeah, like yeah it, it was different. People didn't know what it was. Different yeah. color, different yeah. this and different that. And yeah. then um, this kids, this group of kids didn't like it. Okay, I moved on to the next table. But obviously that affects you. You know, you go home and you start questioning, be like, oh, well, why is this? And then you can't tell your parents. You can't ask your parents because they don't know the culture. They're going to be like, ah, oh, forget it. It's going to be fine. Um, so it was always keeping that inside of me. But, but it was life lessons that 
were just given to me at a very young age. Yeah. And I saw it again. I always treated everything uh, through a positive scope yeah. and just being curious. And and I mean, I don't think I've done that bad. So no, far, you're doing so. good. <laughs> Before you take this fateful Burger King job, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about these great childhood memories in the kitchen. Did you have your sights set on cooking professionally? Did you think you might want to do something different when you were an adult? Did you not have any idea? Yeah. Where were you in terms of thinking about adulthood when you take that teenage job at a local Burger King? Um, at that point, I knew my only out was going to be a, a factory job. Once I graduated high school, uh, it was going to be that. You know, I had no papers. My parents, um, you know, immigrants um, financially weren't there at all. Uh, College and, and wasn't even no, something you thought about. No, exactly. Uh, one thing that really marked me, another wide intersection in my life, my older sister, she's Karina, she's two years older than me. So I was, what, 10th grade and she was in 12, 12 she was a senior in high school. Made uh, one of the smartest persons I've ever known in my life. Um, made the national honor roll. We used to get like all this like requests of like, hey, uh, you know, come and check out the school, blah blah blah. Oh, you mean all the like direct College, mail pieces? Exactly, and stuff? all yeah. this stuff. My kids and, are seniors right now, so and, and yeah. you know, my parents felt very proud, and that was something like, oh my god, like schools in the U.S. want Karina to come and study here. Yeah, it was like a, a dream come true as an immigrant parent, as an immigrant family. And then we went through the whole process to sadly realize that every counselor was like pretty much saying, um, you're gonna have to pay twice as much tuition because there's no financial aid for you guys. You guys don't, you know, are not She legally. was essentially a foreigner. Yeah. Even though we had here. grown up in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, so we'd have to pay like... And the, this is already 10 years after we arrived to this country. Yeah. So we have to pay twice as much. And my parents couldn't even afford regular tuition. Yeah. Let alone times two. So she had to give all of that up to just get a regular nine to five job as a telemarketer. That to me marked me. I didn't know wow, how I was going to do it. But I remember, I'm like, I have to be better than that. Ended up enrolling in a vocational school. Did you go to like Bosey's or something like I that? I did go to Bosey's. Okay. Yeah, that's out a in big, Oakdale. It's not strictly Long Island. But oh, that, really? Okay. But in Long Island, yes. that is a very, that's, a lot of people who are drawn to cooking end yeah. up, you go half a day to high school. Correct. And then your afternoons, you, you start learning how to cook. Yep, that's yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I ended up in Bosey's. That okay. was like my first, like, I, I say I don't go to, I, didn't, I never went to culinary schools. I never went to the CIA, Johnson & Wells. Uh, but Bosey's was like my first intro of what, you know, Arose yeah. means. Nothing what, wrong with Bosey's. You know, things like that. So I remember it's a two-year program. Yeah. I took my first year when I was a senior. Then I would have graduated. I had to graduate high school. And I needed to continue the program, but I had to pay $8,000 out of my pocket because I'm not enrolled in the school district anymore. I'm not in the school system. So one day I went home and I was like, hey, mom and dad, um, I'm going to flunk high school. I'm not going to graduate this year because I know we don't have money. And if I go back next year, I could finish my BOCES. I could get a certificate and you guys don't have to pay a penny out of it. So they're like, you're crazy, but OK. Uh, went to school and I spoke to my science teacher and my math teacher. Uh, the credits from BOCES applied to those two subjects. And I bluntly just told them, I'm gonna fail, I'm not gonna graduate with my class. And I'm gonna fail your class on purpose. And I'm gonna come back next year to take your class back again just for two periods. And then I'm gonna go to BOCES and the school district is gonna pay for my certificate. Okay. And that's how it happened. Wow, okay, <laughs> so here's what I, I wanna know. You know, you end up 
before too long, right, you start setting your sights at some pretty high-level kitchens in New York. Where, as a student, and as you start going to BOCES, right, and mm -hmm. start learning the craft, yes. what was your knowledge of what was going on in food? Like, what was your knowledge of restaurants? What was your knowledge of, of the chef culture? What was your knowledge of, uh, you know, uh, fine dining in the United States? Correct. Like, did you watch food television? Yeah. Did you watch documentaries? Were you reading cookbooks? Just what, what, what were your frames of reference as a teenager? When I was going to BOCES, I was working at the Sheraton at that time. Uh, TGI Fridays, then the Sheridan. And there was this gentleman, Misael. He was another line cook with me from El Salvador. And we would just talk. And then that's when I started realizing what Michelin was. Um, you know, prior to that, from 14 when I started at Burger King to pretty much 18, 19, I didn't know what that was. I, I just knew Burger King, then TGI Fridays. Now I'm talking to this gentleman. And it's so funny because, like, we would talk and we'd be like, Oh my God, like I will give anything to be the fly on the wall at Babo restaurant. And we will see pictures of Babo, you know, and, and we will see how the, small the kitchen is and like rustic Italian food and Mario Batali walking in with his Crocs. Or be like, I wish I could get hired as a dishwasher just to be in that same room. Uh, and those was just like aspirations, those were just thoughts. Those seemed like goals that I would never be able to reach in my life because you know I didn't go to a proper culinary school uh, my resume is just like you know starting off but we would have these dreams this daydreaming type of thing but what's so funny to me is there's plenty of people who've succeeded in that world mm -hmm. who didn't go to I mean you didn't know this yet yeah but there are plenty of people who are just yeah. like you they just yeah. like cooking they're good at it they work their butts off and yeah. and if that's kind of all they're looking for in most kitchens. <laughs> yeah, which is, uh, which, that's But you why couldn't have known that. I couldn't know that, you yeah. know. My, my thing was just like, I, I wanted to study. I wanted to, I, I had that drive to better myself. There was that switch that got turned on. I didn't know how. At that time, I thought it was through just going to school traditionally. Yeah. But it, it didn't play out that way. Okay, so you get through all the schooling. Mm -hmm. uh, you've worked these jobs we've talked about, mm -hmm. TGI Fridays and yeah. the Sheridan. And how do you, when do you first decide to, you know, put yourself out there, take a shot, yep. apply for a job in a New York City kitchen yep. and, and go for it? Well, how do you decide was, to do that and how do you go about it? I was working at a mom and pop shop, Italian restaurant out in East Islip. And all of a sudden, the sh I was like 20, 21. The chef just quit. He was doing a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking. Uh, he ended up quitting. And then the owner comes up to me and goes like, all right, now you're running the kitchen. And I'm like, what? Uh, you're crazy. But yeah, I ran the kitchen for about three months. So you did the old, you just did the menu? Yeah, I okay. did the menu, I did the ordering. Um, and then I started realizing that vendors would come in and then they wouldn't drop off things because there wasn't a check. Or we would have to run to Restaurant Depot to get the supplies for the evening. And I was like, all right, something is fishy here. Eventually the guy just, didn't open the doors, left without paying me about three paychecks. And that's when I was like, you know what? I'm done with Long Island in the sense of like, what else is there? I had a really bitter situation just happen. Um, let me move to New York City. Cause I knew that was like the melting pot. That was like, you know, the cream. It slips not that far away. You can hop on and a not, train and be yeah, here pretty that's fast, exactly right? That's exactly how we started. But yeah. had you spent any time in New York City? Uh, kind of like partying with fake IDs and things like that. Okay. Like, you would you come know. in with your friends yeah, and Yeah, I was coming with my friends. Okay. And they, and we'll, okay. we would cut school. Once my friends got their driver's license, like, we would like, cut school and then come over here for the day and Screw then head around. back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But nothing beyond that? Nothing beyond that, okay. yeah. Uh, so I moved to the Bronx with 800 bucks in my pocket. 
I will commute, I will either take the Metro North on a lucky day or just take the one train that would take about an hour and a half to get here. It was mm -hmm. ridiculous. Yes, it does. And then, uh, yeah, and then I used to work on 28th and Madison at a restaurant called Prana. Which, oh, yeah. Which it was uh, like a Southeast Asian themed restaurant. So they had a, they had a tandoor oven. That's mm -hmm. what I learned how to use, how to make naan, how to use the tandoor. Um, I, they had, um, the rice was made differently. It was made like in this like straw bamboo hat almost looking that you put on top of a steamer and then you cover it with cheesecloth. Never in my life I learned how to cook rice like that. We will make our own homemade curries from scratch, grinding the galango, you know, uh, taking the lemongrass, like all this awesome, beautiful flavors. Food from Cambodia, influence from like Eastern India. So that was like, wow, I'm in New York, I'm riding the subway, I am broke, but I'm here. Were you happy? I was happy. I was so happy because it was like, I was becoming an adult. I was flourishing into like the energy of the, I would walk to Chinatown with my headphones on for no reason before going to work. All the way from the Bronx. Yeah. You know, that's, just- That's it, a real I'm New Yorker. Made that, yeah. you know, that you type of thing. Um, and just like embrace everything because I was so sheltered and I came from an environment and a household that, you know, my, my whole growing up was very different that I was like, this is no holds bar. No one knows me here. No one judges me and let's go for it. How did you get that job? Did you just go knock on the kitchen door one day? Like, how'd you end up in that restaurant? Uh, it was a friend. It was a, one of my chefs back in home in Long Island was friends with the chef here. Oh, perfect. So I came for a stage. They liked me. And I was making the commute at first. I was making the commute for about a month from Long Island to here. And then eventually I was like, I, I can. So I saved up 800 bucks and I told mom and dad, okay, I'm out. I'll see you guys later. Uh, I'm gonna live in the Bronx. <laughs> they were freaked out, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's worked out. I think so far. Wow. Okay. So tell me about your 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 life as a as a um, you know as a young rising line cook in New York City. Yeah. How do you start meeting other cooks? How do you start? You, you didn't have the money to go to nice no, restaurants. No. And but how do you start learning about what's happening in this city at this time? So after working about a year, year and a half at Prana, there was an ad that came out on Craigslist. Daniel Berlou is open in two different, two separate projects at, uh, what was it, uh, across the street from the Lincoln Center. Oh, so this is uh, Epicerie and, and uh, Balloon Sud. Yep. And I was like, Daniel Berlou, I was like, oh my God, like there's an opening for a Daniel Berlou restaurant. Great. And then right after that happiness, it was a thought that dawned me of like, you didn't go to culinary school. He has kids from like, around the world, some of the best culinary schools to come and stage or do a J-1 visa program with him. Look at your resume, uh, another wine section. Why are you even bothering applying? So that marinated with me. Uh, and I was like, okay, this is my reality, but let's go for it. Submitted my resume. Wasn't expecting anything, but it's living with that fear of failure. You know, always being on the edge. Um, one of my biggest fears is like waking up one day and being like, coulda, shoulda, woulda. If I don't wake up every day and, be, and say to myself, wow, yesterday was great. How can I top this off? Well, let's find out today. Then I'm not living my full life. Um, so yes, I submitted my resume. They called me over. And they're like, come and stage at Barbaloo. Barbaloo was already the established restaurant at that corner. Yeah, and that, for people who don't know, that's also near Lincoln Center. And that is, I guess it's Danielle's kind of Lyonnais 
restaurant. Bistro-ish, yeah. you know. Uh, amazing charcuterie oh program. Yeah, he, so he brought a guy over from Lyon when yeah. he opened the restaurant. So amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I went to Stash. I remember walking downstairs. This is my first real big brigade New York City restaurant. Walked through uh, the pass, and as I'm walking through getting escorted by a dishwasher who's showing me the locker room, I hear this loud command, order in uh, one croque monsieur, speaking in French, and uh, one salad lyonnaise. And unanimously, everybody was like, wait. I jolted. I was like, what was that? <laughs> I felt like the inside of me like trembled. Never been exposed that to that. That was scary to you. Yeah, that was oh, scary. That's interesting. It was new. Yeah. It was scary. Well, um, for people, I mean, most people who listen to the show know the industry or are in the industry, but it's sure. it's when you hear that, it's mili- it's militaristic. It is. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's like a boot camp kind uh, of sound. So I was yeah. like, okay, what am I stepping myself into? These right. are like the big leagues. So went on, got changed, came back, shoulder to shoulder working. It's a small New York City kitchen, but like there must have been like 20 people in there. Shoulder, and then it's like shift change. So they're finishing with lunch. They're about to set up for dinner. So the dinner cooks are prepping. Well, lunch is finishing. And then around 4 o'clock, one of the sous chefs steps to his side, and he just yells, party time. And it was two different prep tables. The table on the left, everyone grabbed their cutting boards, grabbed all their mise en place, and moved them to the right. And then there was another team scrubbing down. There was another team, like, squeegeeing. And the last team was just wiping down this is the pre-service wipe yes, down that, yeah. exactly and yeah. then they move from the right side to the left side and i'm sitting there i'm like what is going on this is war <laughs> and it's not even service now this is, this is something people some people may not know but this is a thing in certain kitchens there is a pre-service wipe down correct so yeah. that you're Start not clean. working in the mess of your prep time exactly yeah. yes and, yeah. and, and it's part of the culture it's part of the michelin culture it's oh. part of like you know, perfecting your craft, mm-hmm. having respect for what you do. Yep. Uh, which it, it was beautiful, and I got hooked to that organization, to, to, to being so precise, that detail. In a way, like more people be like, well, why do you have to wipe down? Or why do we have to yell we? Or why do we have to be in unison? It works. And I got hooked. I knew I wanted more. So you became part of the opening team? So I became part of the opening team at Boulud of uh, Boulud, uh, Epicerie Boulud. Epicerie Boulud. Okay. I became the Tornan. And Which, well, for people who don't know, that's basically a floater. A floater. That's someone who can work every, every position. Station. Yeah. 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 Um, I didn't know what a Tornan was until eventually I got put into the job. And I'm like, damn, I need to learn everything. Um, which well, it was What great a great job start, for exactly, you, right? To start in the pick, company yeah. for Daniel Boulud and be a Tornan at one of his restaurants. That was mind-blowing. Um, but again, it didn't stop there. I saw an opportunity of saying to myself, well, I'm broke. I'm commuting a long time. I like to go out with the guys after work because these are new people that I'm getting to know. That's how I'm getting to know new cooks, network. I only have enough, I only have 20 bucks for a few PBRs and a few Jameson shots uh, because they're about $5 for a PBR and a Jameson. Uh, uh, for after hours, you know, bars. So I would have like three of those. I would go home happy, commute, come back. But on my days off, eventually I was like, well, if I don't, I want to go stage because I don't have any f- money to get food for that day because I had to make rent. So I will go stage on my day off, not only to get a meal, but also to network 
but also to see what other kitchens were doing. So you were staging in part for the family yes. meal. Exactly. <laughs> yes. The struggle was real. <laughs> the struggle was real. I have to say, I've been interviewing chefs for over 20 years. I've never had, no one has ever told me that. You, I'm sure you're not the only one. You learn something new every day. So, um, so then I started talking to Gaia. Uh, the pastry chef back in the day at Barbaloon. I was like, Gaia, I want to learn how do you make the Gateau de Basque. Uh, well, come in. And I would show up and then my chef would be like, what are you doing? Because all restaurants are connected downstairs. Yep. That whole corner, the, all the restaurants are connected yep. downstairs they are. through Barbaloon. Yep. And then they're like, well, uh, I was like, I'm just staging. And then I, I, I saw that I was an issue. So before I would go on my stage, I would talk to my chef. I'd be like, I'm going to go to Baloo Suit tomorrow. And I'm going to hang out upstairs on the other side to learn something new. And then people around the company got to know me, at least in those three restaurants. Uh, and I'll be the guy who was always there. I'll be the guy who knew a little bit of this, who knew a little bit of that. I'll be the guy that'd be like, you're crazy. What are you doing here? Isn't your only day off? I wouldn't have days off for months. And I didn't see it like that. I saw it as my culinary school. Mm -hmm. I was so hungry. Uh, then I went on to DBGB. And I was like, I learned three different business concepts up in this corner. Yeah. So DBGB, we got to say, was, uh, it didn't last. It, it lasted about, uh, I mean, it, it, like five, it made it a little more than, I remember they had a big fifth anniversary party, yes. but not long after that it closed. But yep. that was down on the Bowery. Bowery in Houston. Yeah, and that was Danielle's like, quote unquote, I mean, it was still a Danielle restaurant. Yeah. But for him, it was, uh, you know, kind of let your hair down. Yep. They had a, uh, a whole menu of burgers. Sausages. They had an amazing beer a beer program. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and decorated with like pots and pans and stuff from like His, famous chefs. Yeah, yeah it was like kind of yeah, it was like a culinary hard rock cafe. Yeah, instead yeah, of guitars, it was, it was, pots. Yeah, it was yeah. yeah, it was like a museum. Instead of guitars, it was pots and pans. That was part yeah. of the beauty. You would go and walk around the whole the four walls of the dining room and look up. So you worked. So did you work at you? So you spent time at the three places in at the Lincoln Center area. Then yes. you went and worked at DBGB. Correct. Okay. And then um, that's when I figured out a whole different aspect of like the business. What do you do with the end cuts? Turn them into a sausage and then have brunches and then make money like that. And that to me was like, I want to learn more. So I really engulfed myself in that. After uh, three, three and a half years in the company, I'm um, like, I'm ready for my first Michelin star. And Gavin Kaysen was the chef. Old friend of mine. At, um, what a legend, that guy. Uh, little did I know he was, he still is one of my mentors. Um, so this would have been Cafe Baloo. Cafe Baloo. Yeah. Yeah. And I walked past Cafe Baloo one day, uh, again, doing my rounds, exploring the city. I still have that little child in me who's very curious. And I saw on the menu that they have a section where they change every season. And on that menu was Latin American cuisine that, that time. And the first thing that I saw was black bean soup. We eat black bean soup in Costa Rica. Obviously, I didn't never had it here at Cafe, but the fact that I saw a one-star Michelin restaurant with a Relais Chateau emblem in the outside and then a plaque of Bocuse d'Or and Gavin Kaysen serving black bean soup, that to me is like, I need to work in this place. That was like a billboard on your, on your, yes. on your journey. It was, yes, I was like, yeah. I was so taken back by that, so shocked. I'm like, I need to work in this place. And that's how it happened. At uh, 25 years old, I had a goal of being in my first Michelin restaurant, and Cafe Boulou was my first experience. Great. At what level, at what position? Uh, I started from the bottom. Okay. I specifically, from Cafe Boulou forward, I made a promise to myself 
because of being at cafe and seeing how that black bean soup got there i wanted to learn every aspect of it and i wanted to know how and why it got there so to start from the bottom at that foundation it's easy to grow then having that ego or you know coming in and be like well this is all i've done let, let pride go let, leave that at the door just just humble yourself because there's so many beautiful lessons that you can learn from putting your head down and being at the bottom because once you get to a certain level people will respect you more automatically it just happens organically because you put in the time you have the knowledge you build that confidence but many cooks nowadays want to rise to the top and it doesn't work like that you know there's there's something beautiful about the process and and, and that gap whatever that gap may be it could be years it could be opportunities um, don't don't deprive yourself from from that knowledge and those lessons so this is maybe a good point to bring up something that I find very um, I, 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 I know you're not looking for sympathy but when mm -hmm. I learned this detail of your life it made me a little sad for you because there's there's nothing I always say when a chef a cook a chef whatever you know whatever um, you know, income level they're at, whatever their, their means are at the time. You give a cook or a chef more than like two, three days off, they travel. Yeah. They love to travel. Yeah. It's a thing. <laughs> you can't leave. You have not been able to leave the United States. Yeah. You have not been able to, like, you, you know, you see it on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Even line cooks, like, they'll get a cheap yeah. flight. They go to Paris for whatever, mm -hmm. and they knock around. They go eat in fancy restaurants yeah. and, and, you know, underdressed. Yeah. and. You know, just to experience Stay it. Stay at hostels. All that like, stuff. Like all this stuff, yeah, go you, stage and yeah. You've never been able to do uh -huh. this. So, uh -huh. you know, when you mentioned Cafe Balloud, uh, you know, that the menu there, famously, I guess, is mm -hmm. divided into four sections. Correct, yep. It's like season, one is kind of seasonal, one is the market, one is tradition, and yeah. then one is voyage. La Voyage, which Wait. is they explore the foods of different countries. Correct. It seems to me like your travel has occurred in kitchens and in through your palate and and through cookbooks and in rest and on the plate is that accurate and you know what andrew um nobody could take that away from me but is that an accurate yes, statement yes it is yes it is so you that's exactly you, how i travel you traveled via the combination of your mm -hmm. palate and your you have a huge smile as i say this. <laughs> yeah. but your palate and your imagination have been your source of experiencing other cultures of being free of wow Expand not, on that for me. That's not, a huge, that's a big Not being chained down to what the system is telling me or how am I supposed to live my life in society. Um, I make my own rules, not in a rebellious way. Uh, I make my own decisions. I always look at the bright side of things. You know, um, if you practice that enough, it's going to become a hobby. Then those hobbies become characteristics. Then it becomes personality. Where, yes, you could feel pity for me, um, but... It's been a blessing because I feel like I've traveled more in an instant than most people could ever imagine. And it, Because you've been privy to so many great... Yes. Yeah. I have a big library of cookbooks. I have some of your cookbooks. Oh. Uh, the ones, I forget the name, but the one that the chefs make all the mistakes. Um, they oh, should, that's not a cookbook, but yeah, don't yeah, try this at home. Don't try this at home. <laughs> that would... That to me, I travel through that book exactly oh, because well, of different experiences. Much. Yeah, of there's stories at different levels. Yeah, Michelin, mom and pop shop, whatever it was. Wow, right. there's like, a lot of stories in that book about people working stages overseas. Yeah, and I don't yeah. even have to meet these chefs. So books is something so important for me. Uh, biographies, Granakis biography, uh, Marcus Samuelson, yes chef, how he got treated in the cruise ships. At that point in my life, I was like, wow. 
this guy, I, I, I know what he's talking about. And somebody wrote it. And there's an out for me. Like, there's, there's this light at the end of the tunnel for me type of thing. Well, I don't know if people understand this at this point about Marcus, but, um, I mean, I've known, Marcus and I have known each other since we were, like, kids. I mean, we met when we were, like, in our early 20s. But, you know, Marcus was adopted. Mm -hmm. He's originally from Ethiopia. Correct. Everyone's used to it now because he's so famous. Yeah. But his name is Marcus Samuelson, and he would show up in these fancy kitchens, and he'd be the only black guy. Yep. And exactly. And when they hired him back in the pre-internet days, mm -hmm. and they saw Marcus... They weren't expecting them. Yeah. And it wasn't always a warm yep. reception. Yeah. It was very tough for Marcus. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that was one prime example of be, being like breaking down the chains. Yeah. Um, I could, I, I traveled the world through cuisine, through cooking. There's no boundaries. Um, I'm an immigrant kid from Costa Rica. I grew up in the United States. Most of my career was in New York City. Where do I fit? What box is designed for me? There's no box designed for me. And I follow tradition, but sometimes I like to explore outside of tradition. So that to me is traveling. That to me is freedom. And nobody could take that from me. And this is my job. This is my career. I enjoy doing this. Um, what more can I ask out of life? You know, it's funny. I don't know if you've had this uh, um, observation or realization. It may not be accurate in your case, but I just had a conversation on the last show I dropped. Um, Zoe Adwana, who has a, a book just out in the U.S. called Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Yes. West yeah, African yeah, cuisine. Yeah. Grew up. Uh, her dad was from Ghana. He taught her maybe 10 dishes. Uh, and then she started making trips when she got older to mm -hmm. Africa and, and learning about, you know, the food. And now she's become kind of a, an expert on it. But a number of people, one of them is my friend Jonathan Wu, who used to have Feng Tu restaurants yes, downtown. Yep, yep. You know, Jonathan grew up with a Chinese family, grandparents and whatnot, but had never been to China, right? But the, the positive side of that is his imagination was given free reign because he hadn't been there, right? And I don't, I don't know why you're laughing, but I, imagine in your but I imagine in your case to be exposed to these little, as the English would say, bits and bobs mm -hmm. of different cuisines, not having been to experience them in their place of origin i would imagine for you they're all just building blocks that you can play correct. with correct and i'm not i'm not i'm not portraying myself being like i'm going to make this bim bim bob and it's going to be the best bim bim bob no um that's the last thing that, that i want to portray or, or say right it's just that curiosity right. um building all this artillery and the, those building blocks like you said and like i mean on my menu right now i have a a, a, a dish from that's influenced by Peru and like Pacific, I mean, and um, Scandinavian countries and, and things like that, that it's like, this is the beauty thing about it. Yeah, your and, and, I've and looked at your menu online. It's do, very, um, I don't want to say eclectic because that indicates yeah. like, that sounds like kooky, right? Correct. But your menu, uh, it's very, it's very uh, broad in influence, mm -hmm. um, but it, at, like all menus, you can't put words to it. It's like a good mix from yeah. a DJ. It just all looks, I haven't tasted it, but it all looks like it belongs together. Awesome. Um, you know what I'm saying. And you know, exactly it. I, I, you that's clearly have, you clearly like, have so, a, so you have a voice. Cuisine? And you I'm like, I look at a picture and then this is what, this is the crudo. It's your cuisine. And then they're like, oh my God, like, I don't want to eat this. It should be on a frame. And I'm like, no, just eat it. Like, how do you explain that? Uh, again, because I, I try not to live with those boxes. Yeah. Um, so do I yearn? Do, 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 do I want to go and travel? Of course. 
it, do I think that once I have that opportunity uh, or that right, whatever you want, you want to call it, am I going to be gone for months? Hell yeah. There's a leave of absence you in know. your future. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so or maybe it's the right timing right now. Right. But um, I'm looking forward to that, to, to being able to, uh, I mean, granted, I'm, right now I'm able to travel in the U.S. and do all these beautiful things. And this country is amazing. But I do want to go to Southeast Asia. I, I do want to go to Paris and, you know, enjoy those things that, that normal people do. And um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, while I'm on this topic, because it is related, you said earlier we'll get into DACA, yes. right? Can you just explain to people, um, I mean, this program, uh -huh. uh, tell me if I have it right. Yeah. Because it's, it's very, con it's, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. But as I understand it, uh, you know, you're the child of immigrants. Correct. You, you were brought here as a young child. This yep. program was designed for people who fit into this category. Yes. You were brought, you didn't make the decision to come here. Yep. But this is your home. Mm -hmm. um, and as I understand it, at two-year intervals, mm -hmm. you reapply is this accurate for, for a work, a work permit. permit? Correct. Is that right? Yes, that and is so exactly you have to, it. That's what you've had to do every two years. Yes, every two years. Now, yeah. as long as those permits are in effect, you're good. I'm good. You don't have to lose sleep. You don't, don't have to worry have about to. a knock on the no. door. None of that stuff. None of that stuff, okay. which that was my life prior to 2012 when the program started to be enrolled. Right. Um, then 2012 came around. Everything was great until, again, I'm not trying to choose sides, but until the last administration back that fear was back again of what is going to happen tomorrow this is what is being said out there how far into the progress are they in um so it was at that point there was another sense of frustration of saying like when am i going to get a break what else do i have to prove i'm not a parasite to the system i'm, I'm contributing to the country right you work you pay taxes like why am i yeah. the enemy yeah you know um yeah, so, so it, it, was, it was extremely uh, frustrating. Uh, I didn't know how to act because if I rebelled or if I said something, then I was gonna, it was going to be a target. And, you know, but I couldn't stay quiet because it was my livelihood. If I was to go back to Costa Rica, where do I start? Yeah. Identity, everything. Like, where do I start as a 33, 30-year-old man? Citizenship issues aside, how do you categorize yourself? Do you think of yourself as an American? Um, it's funny because I don't like to call it American. I like to call it, um, I'll be like a United Statesian because I am American. Uh, United States is United States of something, of America. Yeah. America is from Canada all the way to Patagonia. Yeah. Uh, so to say... Point yes, taken, point taken. I am American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you, but, but you consider to be yourself from the US? as a U.S.? Do you consider um, yourself a, of the U.S. at this point? Yes, because I adapted the lifestyle. I speak English. Um, I, I, this is my home. Um, but the more recently I'm searching for my roots, I find a connection. So again, uh, I, I know it's very easy to say, yeah, I'm a citizen of the world, you know, but, but unfortunately we have to, you know, be more yeah, specific. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you could have it tomorrow, you would take a U.S. citizenship. Oh, my God big smile I haven't I haven't I haven't been asked that question I haven't thought about that question but you would I would yeah yes yeah this is where um, this is something this is you would life. like yeah this is my life yeah. I can't deny that yeah I still yeah. haven't forgotten or I'm not offending anyone by saying this because I know where I came from of course and and that, that's never going to change I'm going to take that to my tomb but this is my present this is my reality this is where I build my world yeah and that's where I belong yeah. so yeah yeah I mean, you strike me, and this is not um, 
uh, mutually exclusive to what uh-huh. I just asked you, but you strike me as a quintessential New Yorker. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You, I know you live in uh, no, Aspen right now. I know you live in Aspen now, but you seem to me like a but quintessential New Yorker. You're like you. You're a New Yorker. I love it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I you st- and I come from very different backgrounds. Yes. Uh, yeah. We both spent. You know, I've chosen this as my home. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but you know, you. I feel a kinship with you. I feel like you <laughs> Great. know, and and I, I hope you felt welcome during your time in the oh city. Like the, 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 the first thing that I had for breakfast when I came back is uh, bacon, egg, and cheese there on a Kaiser roll, yeah, so pepper right, ketchup. Right, like, exactly. <laughs> I was geeking out about that. There you go. Okay, I want to get to, to what you're doing now. Correct. Uh, but let's just say, you know, after your time in the, um, in the Dynex group, which mm-hmm. is Danielle's company, mm-hmm. uh, you were at a Terra, mm-hmm. a two-star Michelin, I believe, Correct. when you were there. Yes. Um, you spent time at 11 Madison Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were there in 2017 when, yes. as we said, it won the the, the prize right. that that they're not partners anymore. But yeah. Will Gadara, and we should say when you said before adversity is a terrible thing to waste, uh-huh. that is a Will Gadara ism. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, his father gave a talk with wow. that title once at the welcome conference. Oh wow! Yeah, a lot of you didn't know that. No. Oh. I'm, yeah. I, I assume that's where you got it because no. a lot of people who worked at EMP quote that line. Really? Yeah. So his dad said it at That's a conference? That's a line. It, his dad gave okay. a speech. Adversity is a terrible thing to waste. Oh, I'm going to have to find that out. It's, okay. It's available online. <laughs> anyway, uh, but those guys badly wanted that yeah. number one. Mm-hmm. Badly wanted yeah. it. They got it. Um, now, as I understand it, you spent, they at the time did these, um, uh, oh, I, don't, I mean, uh, pop-ups, pop-ups, I guess. Yeah. They did the summer house out in East Hampton. Correct. And then they did the winter house in Aspen. Yes. Now, my understanding is this is how you got turned on to Aspen was when you went and worked on that project. Is exactly. that right? Yes, that's exactly it. I, I, I did the winter house, um, went out there for the for the first time in a winter. And, and a, a year prior to that, I had a feeling inside of me where I was, do, I was searching for the next thing. That was already like a discomfort of, hey, I'm getting too comfortable in this place. Everything seems like very easy now. What's next? Um, I didn't know what was next. Was either running a restaurant or opening a restaurant. Was it in New York City? I don't know. It's so expensive here. Did I have that kind of exposure? No, because I've been on this one as umbrella. You know, I work for them, but they're the ones that are the faces of the restaurant. How do I go about that? I have no idea. Um, and then I was going through a lot of like mental like um, stress. There was like patches in my head, three patches of being bold. Like really? my hair would just fall off from the stress. From just from work? Yeah, from work. For working in a high pressure environment. Exactly. Okay. You know, uh, so I felt like the difference in my body. Uh, I was, you know, kind of going down a rabbit hole of drinking lots, um, you know, kind of losing focus uh, just because I was getting comfortable. I don't know the Michelin restaurants worldwide that you could consider one, two, three. I didn't have to travel to Europe to work at a number one restaurant in the world. It came here and I got that opportunity, rose myself through the ranks to becoming a sous chef. Um, so something inside of me was dying and you know, my body was telling me and then Aspen came around and it was therapeutic. It was great to be there that winter. Winters are different. The snow is different. 20 degrees feels different here than in Aspen. Uh, and I was it's like, worse here or better here? 
worse. It's worse here. It's worse here. Okay. Because of the humidity. I know the snow's better because I have friends who ski and they, oh, if they, it's ridiculous. They, they will only ski in Colorado. Yeah. It's, it's like it's like powder. It's powder. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and then there's like a winter culture. You know, people do things like like they do in the summer, they do in the winter. So it's not something up. you have to endure. Exactly. Like it's here not. it feels like something, yes. like right now we're sitting here, it's a beautiful day, mm -hmm. but you were here for it. Two nights ago it was really it was, cold. Yeah, it was cold. And yeah. people were like, fuck, <laughs> exactly. I'm not ready for this. That's not the attitude in Colorado. That's not the attitude yeah. in Colorado. Yeah. And I was like, you know what, Like this seems like a very zen place. There's, a, there's an energy about the mountain. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I don't know what to do. So uh, I remember a few hotels, a few There's hotels. an impromptu photo shoot happening yeah. right behind you. You just noticed it. Yeah. Yes. I remember um, a few hotels approached me. Uh, and I'm like, do I really want to get back into hotels? I don't think so. Obviously, my resume looked great to anyone in town. And uh, I remember going to 7908, but only going after work. So it would be like 20 of us from EMP Winter House. We were like rolling deep. And we will go clubbing because it turns into like a fine dining lounge club. Yeah. And when they told me, hey, I heard you guys are leaving. Would you want to come in and have dinner? My reaction was like, is this a restaurant? I thought this was a club or a bar. I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, I'll come in. And then that's when they asked me to... Um, if I wanted to join as the executive chef. You specifically. They yeah. didn't invite a group of you guys no. in. So you had no. gotten to know the crew there. Yeah. And who, like the owner, the uh, GM? The GM. Invited you in for dinner. Exactly. And then the chef at that time. So you guys had a rapport? Uh, he just like, no, he knew who I was, I guess. Uh, he saw me at the restaurant, the club a couple of times. He knew where I was coming from. And how I do guess. you know, like you had, the, just because you were with EMP? Just because I was with EMP. And yeah. then it, that April, everybody, everyone knew that we were leaving town. So maybe they just started like throwing darts out there, see what lands. And being scared, I was like, yeah, I'll take this opportunity. Knowing that I was leaving the number one restaurant in the world, knowing that I was leaving the Michelin world, knowing that I was leaving New York, everything that I'd known as being my life, to go to the Rocky Mountains. That's crazy. To take on this new project of this new restaurant that nobody knows about. Um, How new was it when you were there? It was a year. Just a year. Yeah. Wow. And the food was uh, Creole cooking. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So it didn't fit. When, when, when I had the cocktails, I felt like I was at a speakeasy here in New York. Very crafted, very well-balanced cocktails, artfully designed, like very beautifully. And I was like, wow, this is really good. Found out that there was a master sum on staff. It's like, oh, what is it? 260 something in the world. Wow, we have one of them. I never worked with a master slum throughout my whole mission. You know, this is great. And then the food came, and it was like fried alligator, and nothing against that kind. Of, I mean, that's his own world. But cuisine. it didn't. It was. It, it, it didn't just fit. didn't fit with the yeah, decor. Yeah, everything. And I was like, okay, well, this is where maybe uh, I'm able to shine. Little did I know, it would have taken me a year just to change the culture, just to put the standards. Just to being like, there's a new guy here, and this is how it's gonna go. There was a lot of pushback. Uh, I went through uh, two executive chefs, executive sous chefs, in the first year, to the point where now I don't have an executive sous chef. Now it's just me and my other two chefs. Um, so you're doing. I'm assuming. Uh, I mean, with your background, correct. Um, I mean, there's good restaurants in Colorado for sure, yeah. and for sure in places like Aspen. Uh, 
But I imagine you're doing quite a bit of, like, you know, you mentioned Gavin before, and you said he was your mentor. I imagine you're doing quite a bit of mentoring and uh, and teaching uh, mm -hmm. and and conveying the the the, the technique mm -hmm. that you picked up to your team. I mean, um, you, must, you must be. It's been really awesome because the the fact to to have some cooks saying, "Hey, chefs, I'm I'm gonna quit my morning job because it's taking my attention, and I want to focus here, uh, only in my night job." Me knowing that a lot of people that come to Aspen is seasonal, they work two jobs, and him saying that, I was like, "Wow, I'm making a difference here." Me able to have the impact of people from across the country contact me and be like. I want to come out and stage, or do you have a job? I will move out there to come and work for you. Um, it's been very humbling. It's been very eye-opening. Um, it's it's you know, I like to tell the guys treat. Um, I like to run my kitchen out of respect, not fear. You know, because when you respect someone, you will go the extra mile for that person. When you fear someone, you're tense and 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 you don't get. I don't get what I need from you. We, we don't get out of this. Uh, and and. Being vulnerable, being vulnerable is so amazing because mm -hmm. it teaches you teamwork. Saying like, hey, I don't know how to do this. I'm weak at this, can you help me? So that person comes over over your shoulder and explains it to you. Not only are you building that bond, but there's a better outcome to it. Yeah. So that's how I like to run my kitchen. It's, 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 been, it's been awesome. Yeah, that's I mean, uh, I'm big, not in the the money making business. I'm in the uh, investing in people business because it. it will pay. I back. love it. How uh, when you you know this thing came a little bit out of left field. This opportunity uh, when you go about uh, putting together the menu mm -hmm. that I just alluded to, having mm -hmm. you know looked at online. How ready were you for that moment? Like, did you have a notebook full of d ideas uh -huh. for wh when your moment came? Yeah. Did you have to kind of start from scratch, uh, conceiving and testing dishes? I mean, yeah. you had a, you you said you left the old menu in place for a while. Yeah. Um, so you had some time while you were there, I'm sure, in in, in down hours to mm -hmm. to experiment. But mm -hmm. how? Obviously, you had nowhere to put it. You weren't in a position to like put dishes on the menu yeah. at EMP, but. Um, you know how, in your mind, in the restaurant in your head, mm -hmm. how uh, how um, developed was your repertoire? I mean, prior to 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 me putting all that menu into work into a page, it's been many years of me writing notes. So you had me a lot of ideas menus. on paper. I was running a little supper club here in Harlem oh. once a month. Me and my roommate. We in were, your apartment. In my apartment. Uh, once a month, for it started with friends, for ten people, and then those friends started like spreading the word, and then other people through work wanted to, and we did it for about a year. We would be booked out three months in advance. Uh, we would go and buy the wine at the wine shop over at Whole Foods on 96th Street. I was living in West Harlem at that time, so and then yeah, people would come over. We would do about five or six courses. Uh, in a little tiny New York City apartment, we bought our plateware from IKEA because that's all we could afford. We would make a little bit of money and then reinvest that to get the plateware for next time, and then reinvest that to get the glassware. Um, next thing we knew, uh, it started kind of like really getting popular. That and we got scared. We're like, "All right, dude, like we're not running a restaurant. People are coming in here thinking that this is a restaurant," um, and. That's where the whole creativity and menu development, I guess, started. Okay, so you had a running start. To I do had that. a running, yeah, correct. That's great. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, 
tell, can tell them just briefly, the restaurant, you said yourself, you're like, this is a restaurant? Because yes. you thought it was a club. You know, you go to the web, it's a nice website, mm-hmm. uh, but there are things, you know, I see your background, right? Yeah. But then I also see phrases I'm not used to seeing next to the background of a guy like you, like bottle service, Yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not being yeah. funny, by the way, that is, a, that is on the website. Correct. Uh, what is, like, what's the, give me, get, paint a picture for me of, of the restaurant. So the restaurant is, you walk in and the food is colorful, it's artful, it's tasty. So you have, a, a, our whole mantra is eat, drink, and dance. And I think our whole mantra was based out of obviously a supper club to uh, the lifestyle of Aspen in the winter. If you think about it, uh, you are gonna go out for drinks before dinner, put on your coat, travel to the bar. Take off your coat, have your drink, be there for an hour or so, then put your coat back again, go across town, you know, sit down for dinner. You're there for three or four hours, now you wanna go party, do this. So we cut all of that. You know, in a small <laughs> one stop, town. One stop shopping. One stop shop. <laughs> Um, so to, when I arrived, obviously I wanted to do fine dining food. I wanted to do Michelin starter food. I wanted to like come in from the number one restaurant in the world. I had like gunslinging. And then I was like, here's the culture of the kitchen. I'm like, whoa, I can't achieve this if I don't work on this. So it was a humbling experience because I thought I could flip it overnight. And reality is like, this is how life works. You can't flip it overnight. Yeah. Uh, now we have the culture. So now it's convincing the guest of being like, this is not a fist pump, South Jersey Shore type of place where you come and like drink. People are like, oh my God, like I just had a dinner that reminded me of being in New York or being in LA. Like, what is this? Is this an Aspen? So it's finding that little gem that people are starting to realize. Now with the exposure and everything of what's happening in my life, um, it's a little bit easier, but it's been a learning process for me also. We went away from like having burgers to now having beautiful dishes. You know, we build that confidence of being like, this is the check average, now this is gonna be the new check average. Um, and you see the clientele, kind of. So that place doesn't make sense outside of Aspen. And only in Aspen it makes sense, and people are embracing it. You know, so you go from having a nice, beautiful meal to eventually maybe partying with Dwight Howard at the table water service next to you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you just never know because it's so concentrated, Aspen, that um, it makes sense there. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the experience of 7908. That's great. <laughs> you seem so happy. You seem like a man in full. You, yeah. You're in a good place. <laughs> Thank you. Are Thank you? you very much. I mean, I'm asking you. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what this thing called life is like. You know, I wake up yeah, every day course. and yeah. like I said, I start with grace, being grateful. That never fails me. Um, but you know, not managing phone calls, meetings. My, my day starts like at seven o'clock most days. I'm already on a Zoom meeting because it's 9 a.m. here in New York. People starting to get to the office. Then after four or five of those, pretty much every day, go to the restaurant. Then make sure that, yes, I'm a chef of this restaurant. I'm gonna devote all my attention that I can to this restaurant. Um, and the food is gonna come out. I do a tasting every day. I'm at the pass every day. Uh, making sure that everyone's on check because it's my reputation. You know, I don't want somebody to come in and be like, oh wow, this guy's on TV now and he thinks he could get away with it and charge me this much. No, you know, I'm not here to cheat people. On top of all of that, mentoring, uh, working on my physical health, my mental health, having that balance, 
do all the traveling that I'm doing now. Um, it's it's a lot, but um, I love it. And that's our show for today. My thanks again to Byron Gomez. If you find yourself in Aspen, Colorado, or if you live there, please do support Byron and his team at 7908. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or rating or especially reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, which really does help new listeners discover us. Our thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back here soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>